We hope you enjoy this message from St. Martin C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. We have been doing a series over the last little while, which we're going to conclude today. It's called, How Now Shall We Live? How Now Shall We Live? In this series, we've been exploring the book uh, of Romans, chapters 12 to 14. We've been going through passage by passage through these chapters. And these chapters show the heart of God that we've just been singing about, the way people should live in light of the mercy of God, the mercy that's seen in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It changes us. This life that we're called to live is one of radical, self-sacrificial love, working together, forgiving enemies, submitting to authorities, loving others, living upright, moral lives. And I think one of the great things about this series is that it's been really practical. If you've been here, you've gone, oh, wow, that's really interesting. You know, it, it, this is actually one of the things people often say about the Bible. They say, you know, the Bible, it's such an old book. It's so, what does it have to say about my life today? Is it really relevant? It doesn't talk about my life today. And so far, these passages have been relevant. And we're going to see if that trend continues as we read Romans chapter 14. Verse 1 says this, Accept other believers who are weak in faith. And don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Now, this whole chapter is dealing with the unlikely scenario of what should happen if Christians disagree about something. Can you think of a way that we might be able to apply this passage? Christians never disagree, right? Okay, there may be one or two discussions happening at the moment. But how now shall we live in the way that we approach these discussions? Let's be honest. As much as we would love church to be a place of automatic harmony and uncontested unity, it's not always the case. We're going to read about some situations from 2,000 years ago that show that these things will come. We shouldn't see them as a sign that we're not being who God has called us to be, but rather an opportunity to grow into the new life that he has for us and to work hard to be all that he has called us to be. Disagreements happen, don't they? It's just a natural part of life. They can sometimes be about big things, sometimes it be about little things. I came across a hashtag this week. Now, if you don't know what a hashtag is, it's a way of grouping conversations together on social media. And this hashtag was called Dumbest Family Fight. And automatically, I think you can probably think of a few from your own life and situations that you've been a part of. But just to make you feel better maybe about your own family, here are some of the hashtag Dumbest Family Fights. Uh, Number one. My family and I once had a month-long argument about whether you put on socks, then underwear, or underwear, then socks. Yeah, right. So, yeah. No, not neither. Uh, There's that. Yeah, right. Our family argued for an entire month about that. Can you imagine? Number two. When I was four, my grandmother and great-grandmother had a curse word-filled debate on which is a better game show, Wheel of Fortune or Jeopardy during Christmas dinner, and we all had to leave and we didn't get pie. (laughs) The things that we fight about, the things that we argue about. Uh, Another one. In our 30s, my twin sister described to me an incident in high school that she'd never forgiven me for. 
It occurred on the balcony of our cafeteria. Our cafeteria didn't have a balcony. It was a dream, and she'd been upset for 15 years. Uh, last one. Uh, my family fought for three hours straight, and the entire argument was about whether people should enter their homes using their left or right leg first. Is it that way, or is it that way? Disagreements happen. If you don't want to face disagreements, then don't be part of a church, or in fact, any organization, or a family, or a group of friends, and particularly don't be part of a marriage, right? Disagreements happen. There will be places where we don't see eye to eye. This passage uh, focuses solely on church disagreements, but, but look out for it. There are principles here that apply to every relationship of your life. This morning we're going to see from Scripture, quite clearly though, that we have a choice. When you disagree with another Christian, you can fight to be right or strive to unite. You can't do both. When you disagree, you can fight to be right or strive to unite. You can't do both. Paul is going to use a couple of examples of disagreements which are relevant for them. So the first is to do with what they eat. Verse 2. For instance, Paul says, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. Maybe scripture is slightly relevant for us today. Paul explains that there are issues that believers will disagree on. This example most likely refers to Jews who would become vegetarians in practice because in their part of the city, they could not guarantee being able to get meat that had been properly slaughtered according to the kosher laws laid down in the Bible and interpreted in Jewish tradition. Unless there was a proper Jewish butcher available, it might well have seemed a wiser course of action to abstain not only from pork, as Jews always would, but from all kinds of meat. And so there were two different opinions on this issue. How should they respond? When we have disagreements, how should we respond? Paul says, and this principle is so important for us, don't condemn those you disagree with. One of the words that's used in verse 3 means to reject someone, to ridicule them. Paul says, don't put yourself in the place of God over another person. You might disagree with their perspective, but don't put ridicule on them. Don't reject them. Don't make a judgment on how genuine their trust in God is. That's not for any of us to judge. You are not God. You are not their judge. I love how Tom Wright shows us this difficulty in his commentary on this passage. I want you to uh, think about these words, which he wrote probably about 15, 16 years ago, and see if you might be able to see how it could apply to us today. He says, Here is a Christian with a strict conscience, whose background, upbringing, and temperament all incline him towards a very serious view of his moral responsibilities. As far as he can see, and that phrase is important, the Christian is surrounded by a very wicked and corrupt pagan world. 
The best thing to do is to shun it completely. And if that means not touching meat, so be it. He then notices that this woman over here, who apparently claims to be a Christian as well, is buying from the market. Meat which has obviously come from a pagan temple. How appalling. She's letting the side down. She and her family are deeply compromised. The only response is condemnation. The Christian woman, meanwhile, has been taught the deep, deep and rich truth that the one true God is the creator and redeemer of all things. The whole world belongs to him, including every piece of meat you might buy or cook. She knows perfectly well that she is called to holiness, to a lifestyle very different to that of the pagan world around. But she knows equally well that outward regulations about what you can and can't touch, taste and handle, don't actually go to the heart of genuine holiness. For that, you need the complete renewal of the mind of Romans 12, verse 1. She gets tired of being sniped at and criticized by people who don't seem to have learned what is for her one of the most basic and liberating of the gospel's lessons. They seem small-minded, timid, unable to see beyond their own front doors. When she thinks of people like that, she despises them. Both, says Tom Wright, are natural reactions. Each grows out of a firm grasp of one part of Christian truth. But towering above the truths that these two characters have embraced stands a further truth, which needs to be grasped even more firmly and lived out even more energetically, that there is one Lord, and it is before him and him alone that every Christian lives and dies, stands or falls. Pretty good, right? You can strive to be, uh, you can fight to be right, or you can strive to unite. You can't do both. I've been really convicted by this passage. And now when I begin to question other people's motives, I hear a little voice that says, Who do you think you are? You don't know why that person is doing that. You can't see their heart. And rightly, I'm encouraged to pull back my judgment and pray for them and bless them. Here's another example, Romans 14, verse 5. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. The second issue is on whether to worship on special days, like the Sabbath or other Jewish feast days. Paul says that the important thing in these issues is that we respond to God's uh, person, calling, his, his calling for us. And with whatever we do, to do it with thanksgiving for the glory of God. I love how the message paraphrase, paraphrase puts verse 6, the next verse. It says this, What's important in all this is that if you keep a holy day, keep it for God's sake. If you eat meat, eat it to the glory of God. And thank God for prime rib. If you're a vegetarian, Eat vegetables to the glory of God. And thank God for broccoli. <laughs> it's a paraphrase, obviously, but it, it kind of gets to the heart of the issue. It's, it's you glorify God and you do it before him. You can have a directly opposite approach to an issue, but do it for exactly the same reason. And Paul says that's okay. But this leads to a really interesting question. How far do we take this principle? It seems like a good way to get to do whatever we want. All we have to do is say, God, I thank you for that. And it becomes all right. If all things belong to God and I'm God's child, does that give me the right to steal? Thank you, God, for that person's poor security. 
and that their big screen TV belongs to you and I'm yours, so it's mine. I thank you, God, for the creation of beautiful bodies as I watch pornography. Does that make it all right? If I sneakily find a way to get ahead in my work at the expense of someone else, should I think it's okay because I'm convinced that I could bring God's kingdom more effectively than another person? Now, I'm obviously being extreme, all right? So we can see that there is a difference between moral issues and issues of conscience. Paul is quite explicit that some of our thoughts, words, and deeds are intrinsically evil and need to be changed. We can't do them just by thanking God and to God's glory. The principle of this verse is not meant for clearly laid out issues of morality. It's meant for issues of a person's conscience that were not essential to representing Christ. How do we tell the difference? Well, some it's easy, some it's not. It must often be done on a case-by-case basis, weighing up primarily the teaching of the Gospels and the New Testament to come to a determination on these issues. Ultimately, though, we are all accountable to God. Verse 12. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Now keep verse 13 up for a second because there's an interesting thing that goes on in Romans chapter 14. There's a Greek word used twice in this verse, eight times overall in Romans 14. And it's the word krino, krino, K-R-I-N-O. And it means to judge. It's often used to talk about how one Christian is looking down on someone or judging them. But then Paul totally changes the way in this verse that he uses the word. So far he said, don't condemn, don't judge, don't look down on others. It's all about me evaluating you. Then he flips it to say, turn your judgment on yourself. The word decide, decide on how you'll behave. says it this way, so let's not crino each other. Instead, crino to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Now here's the great reversal of attitude that this scripture requires of us. That same scrutiny that you used on others, instead use on yourself. Judge whether you, through your attitude and way of life, are bringing others closer to God or further away from God. Hold yourself to a way of living that includes others and strives to bring them together as one. Don't judge, but instead decide to live in such a way that others will not stumble. So what does this look like practically? Well, here's some principles, some observations that I've seen. Never use the phrase, those people. If those people are Christians, then they are your people. They are part of your family. If they're not, then they are someone that Jesus died for. Whenever you get into a place of saying, well, what those people are doing, then you're usually in the place of judgment. Number two, beware of, accepting everything, uh, of, beware of accepting everything from groups of people just like you. We want to justify our position, and we tend to gravitate towards people who agree with us. And when we only speak to others just like us, we can then demonize the other side, those people. We gossip, and we slander, and we laugh at them in their position. These are not Christian behaviors. Number three, encourage others. Don't tear them down. 
I was digesting this passage this week, and uh, while I had, I had was, I had an opportunity to put it into practice. I was talking about one person, and in my high and mighty judgment, they had done something better than a second person. And I started saying, well, they did that much better than, and I stopped. And I went, no, no, that's, that's judgment. I started again. They did that really strongly, I said. Instead of using judgment and comparison, just use encouragement. Number four, be aware that we are often wrong. We at times believe things we think are correct, but turn out to be wrong. Have ever think about the things that you believed as a child? Recently, a friend of mine asked a question on Facebook. He said this. He said, hey, look, I, I need some, some entertainment. Can you tell me something you believe from others or you convinced yourself when you were a, quick, a kid but later found out was wrong? And here are some of the responses. Someone said, I used to think that English must be the easiest language to learn in all the world because it called everything what it was, a chair, a table, a rock, a tree... Another person said, I thought the whole carrots help you see in the dark thing meant that they glowed in the dark so you could use them like a torch. <laughs> Another person said, I thought Labor Day was about pregnancy, which I actually think is not a bad idea. Maybe we can petition to, uh, for all of those amazing mums who go through labor. They should have a day. And number five, I thought that animals could talk back if they wanted, but they just chose not to because they thought we weren't worth the effort. <laughs> That one might be true, yeah. I think possibly there are animals who are going, nah, it's just not worth it. There are times when we believe things that are not true. There's something called the placebo effect. Did you know that those who are told that they are taking painkillers but are taking nothing at all, just a placebo, actually report less pain? And do you know those who are told that they are taking more expensive painkillers report an even uh, stronger uh, amount of less pain. They have less pain even more so because they're told that they are more expensive painkillers. And we also need to recognize that we come to things with a confirmation bias. If we believe we have a big, ugly nose, then we are more likely to think that everyone is looking at our nose. If we hold strongly that meat-eating is okay, we're more likely to ignore the statistics about the impact of the beef industry on the climate. We're more likely to gravitate towards scriptures that show it's not a problem. We're more likely to believe that God says that there is no problem. All this means that we need to hold humbly to our many viewpoints rather than declare we are definitely right about everything. We've been wrong before, we will be wrong again. What if we approach these issues with a degree of humility? What if we say, God... In the integrity of my heart, I've made a decision about this disputable thing. However, I've been wrong before. Please give me wisdom to know the right thing to do, and may I leave the judgment of others up to you. Another principle. Don't allow any non-gospel issue to define you. We fight about dumb things, and sometimes we are just plain wrong but we still want to hold on to our position. What's that about? Many of us has an have an internal voice that says, if I'm not right, then I'm not all right. If I'm not right, then I'm not all right. If I say something is true and you disagree with me, you disagree with who I am. But when your significance, an image of yourself is tied up with 
who you think you are, with that one issue, then you've lost focus on what really matters. It's subtle and it happens under the surface. But I've seen it in me. It's one of those things I need to surrender, to lay down, living sacrifice. Because when my eyes are on me and what being right about this issue means to me, then I'm not focused on loving God more. I'm not loving other people with the self-sacrificial love of Christ. They be, it becomes such a distraction. You can fight to be right, or you can strive to unite. You can't do both. How now shall we live? What then should we do? Just ignore these issues between us? Pretend they don't exist? Not talk about them? Well, if we continue reading Romans 14, and we're not going to read all of it today, we'll see that it seems not. That's not what Paul does. After telling them not to judge, but instead to look at their own behavior, he says this, Romans 14, verse 14, I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat, but if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person, it's wrong. Paul emphasizes that people can have their own opinion on contestable issues, but he doesn't shy away from talking about those issues. In fact, he's really happy to disagree and even use his apostolic authority to do so. But if everyone has a different perspective, doesn't that mean that there's no unity? No. Unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean we're exactly the same. You can disagree with someone on something and still be unified. This is the striving and hard work that we need to create unity. In any relationship, harmony is a major aim and unity is our desire. But it never comes without hard work. Never. Any relationship where there is long-lasting harmony will only come as you work through things together. What does that look like? It looks like, first of all, that you engage in conversations. Don't run away from tough conversations. Engage in them. Listen to each other with an open heart. Be ready to move in your position. John Stott says, alongside this explicit instruction not to violate our conscience, there is an implicit requirement to educate it. And that happens in a community of people. So engage in these conversations with humility and an open heart. Secondly, know when to agree to disagree. On conscience issues, it's good to have the conversation and then their people have their opinion. Don't keep badgering them. Don't keep going back to them and saying, well, this and this and this. No, listen, listen, we disagree on this, but let's move past this because there are bigger things here. Recognize they view something different and be okay with that. Focus on the things that really matter. Number three, watch your tone. The difference between a friendly conversation and a damaging conversation comes down to tone. And as parents, we know this, don't we? Your kid can say, can I, have, uh, can I have dessert? Or your kid can say, can I have dessert? And there's a big difference in that kind of a conversation based on tone. I don't recommend having these conversations on social media, but I came across actually this week a couple of excellent examples uh, from members of our church uh, that expressed their views in well-considered but really warm ways. Don't usually see that on social media. 
I usually just see the sides being built and people demonising each other. Joseph Clay said it well, lay your weapons down, there are no enemies in front of you. We're part of the same family. We can work together. Let's be willing to have the tough conversations, but have them with grace and love and understanding. So, technically right now, that is the end of the sermon. And we're going to do in a moment, not just yet, is we're going to take communion. But there is an elephant in the room. We've done this whole passage, and I haven't mentioned the V word once. Are you impressed? It was really hard. Uh, but I think we need to talk about vaccines, because that's what's going on right now, isn't it? Now, why haven't I talked about vaccines? The first reason is that I want us to see that this principle is bigger than vaccines. I hope that in a little while, whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, that'll just be a distant memory. But other things will come. There will always be areas of disagreement that we have with each other. And we need to know, separate from just that one issue, how do we deal with all of that? Applying these principles to those situations and even to our personal relationship. The second is that I don't think I've needed to because sometimes, I mean, we talked about Scripture not being applicable to today, but sometimes Scripture is so clear and explicit that you don't need to get too specific. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And my prayer for you is that as you've been listening, that the Holy Spirit's been encouraging you, and maybe occasionally convicting you, as he has me. But I will answer the question that some of you will be asking. Are vaccines a moral issue? where there is clear scriptural direction? Or is it one of those personal conscience issues we can agree to disagree on? Now, this is, this is my opinion. We can have a discussion about this. But whether you had the vaccine or not, you know, that's all part of it. I believe that a vaccine is a personal conscience issue. I know there's a public health element to it, but it's not a salvation issue. It's not one that affects your relationship with God. And I think we need to be humble enough to have conversations about it and be willing to differ on opinion and strive to support each other, particularly those who are in danger of negative health issues and those who are excluded due to their personal conscience. There's two extremes. We've got to be aware of all of that. That's the nuance that's needed. And it's, it's tough. I get it. It's tough. But we've got to strive for that. And I've also read all of the survey responses that people very kindly gave us and a number of emails and had a number of personal conversations on top of those. And I've got to say this, based on all that I've seen and heard and talked with the people about, for those who are vaccinated and those who are unvaccinated and those who are waiting for the right time to be vaccinated, they're all doing it with faith. They're all doing it to the glory of God. They're all saying, God, I have submitted this to you and I'm following you in this way. God is very much involved with everybody who is making this decision. And this then is a chance for us to show grace, patience and understanding. And yeah, there are restrictions and yeah, we have to do things a bit differently. But as Paul says, Romans 14 verse 19, so then, let us aim for, in other words, it's not automatic. Aim for, in other words, you're going to have to set your sight on it and then begin to move towards it. Let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up on this issue. You can fight to be right or you can strive to unite. 
You can't do both. Our church is a great place. And other than a couple of very rare exceptions, I've not encountered condemnation from one group to another. Differences of opinions, but a huge amount of care and understanding. Well done, church. Let's do more. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org. 